Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Whatever that fire was, the first time you met your character and got you deeply embroiled in your multi-year journey, whatever that fire was, hang on to that because you're going to need it way down the road. you got to remember why you did what you did. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 59. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Steph and I have now run two successful Kickstarter campaigns, first with my own doc, Journey to Kathmandu, and then with our doc, Elvis of Cambodia. One was for the production of DVDs and some marketing, and the second was for production costs for our time in Cambodia. Doing the Kickstarter or Indiegogo thing has practically become a rite of passage for most of us doc filmmakers. It's almost expected at this point for a filmmaker to run at least one, if not two, crowdfunding campaigns throughout the course of the making and distribution of their film. When done right, it can not only serve as a financial boost that drives a a particular stage of your film, but it can also be a really great way to build an audience for your film long before the actual release. In our first segment for today's program, we'll take a look at five tips for crowdfunding your doc. And then this will be followed by a shared conversation with doc filmmakers Leo Warshawski and Todd Soliday, who have defied all independent filmmaking odds and are playing sold-out shows throughout the U.S. with their doc, Big Sonia. They'll have a bit to say about crowdfunding themselves, as well as their astounding journey with marketing, promotions, and theatrical distribution of their film. That and so much more coming up on today's episode of The Documentary Life. What I'm about to go through with you will apply to any sort of crowdfunding campaign for your film. I know in the past I've talked about Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but for our purposes here, we'll remain agnostic in our crowdfunding discussion. Because the truth of the matter is that that Kickstarter and Indiegogo are brands, and there are now a zillion different websites and ways in which one can crowdfund. So ours will be a discussion that can be used for most, if not all, crowdfunding situations. All right, so let's get to it. Five tips for crowdfunding your doc. Right out of the gate, the first thing that I'm going to tell you, and later on both Leah and Todd will corroborate this, is number one, clear your calendars. Make no mistake about it. Running any kind of crowdfunding campaign is a full-time endeavor, and it should be treated as thus. When you run your crowdfund, one of the keys is going to be connecting and building with an audience, keeping them engaged, and then when the time is right, asking them directly for funding for your film. You can't do that if you're only half committed to the task at hand. I don't care if you want to raise two, 
20 or 40 grand for your film. If you're not all in, the universe isn't going to do you any favors. No one is coming to you in order to give you money for your film. Life just doesn't work this way. At least not for the majority of us who are living a doc life and our name isn't, you know, Alex Gibney or Errol Morris. You can't simply wake up one day, decide that you need some money for your doc, come to the conclusion that you'll just, you know, do a Kickstarter campaign because by gosh, everyone else is doing a Kickstarter, slap up a page online and and wait for the money to fall out of the sky and presumably into your hands. I am constantly amazed at the people that I meet who actually think that's how a crowdfunding campaign works. As if you just put up a one-pager on, say, Kickstarter or Indiegogo or wherever, and then they just bring the people to you. Come on, man. If it were that easy, Kickstarter probably would have long ago run out of server space for people's pages. You must be prepared for a lot of work just prior to your campaign and certainly throughout the duration of it. During the time of the actual crowdfund, please realize that all of your time and resources are truly going to need to be devoted to this in order that you raise the funds that you seek for your film and build an audience and awareness for your film long before it's even shot. Number two, become friends with Facebook. It's not just Facebook, of course. It's social media in general. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, these are the most commonly used and accepted ones, and they do need to be your best friends. You need to be nurturing them consistently, and you should be doing this well before you run any sort of crowdfund. Part of your crowdfunding success is going to be not only you know tied to how much you get the word out, but how much others get the word out for you. Social media is a great tool for this. It's so easy for people to say a few words of support for your film and then hit the share button. Now, if you're shy to put yourself out there via social media or you just find social media distasteful in general, that's fine. That's totally okay. And there are times, believe me, where I can see exactly where you're coming from. But then I might suggest that crowdfunding might not be the best way for you to raise funds because it will require social and social media engagement all of the time. You have to be honest with yourself. If you're not willing to put yourself out there, expose yourself a bit, then why should anyone else put themselves out for you? Again, it's all about connecting here and seeing your face, seeing your posts, seeing your engagement is all part and parcel to this. People aren't just supporting your film. In fact, one might argue that most aren't really supporting your film as much as they're supporting you. So they need to see you and they need to hear from you. Social media is a great way to do that. And another way is, number three, email people consistently, but not constantly. Throughout your campaign, you're going to be wanting to build your email list and you'll want to be engaging with the email list. On one hand, don't be shy about using the email list and actually emailing people updates on the film and progress of the crowdfund. After all, they're on your email list because they expect you to be emailing them. Of course, if you bombard them constantly with asks for money, then you risk them ignoring your emails or worse, asking to be removed from the list. So you have to be smart about this, of course. A good rule of thumb is to be emailing people maybe twice a week for the first half of your of your campaign. And gradually increase this number of emails the closer that you get to the target date. And once you're within single-digit days from your final day, you should be emailing every day at that point. 
Oh, and if you don't have an established email list, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. If you're just starting out with your film, especially if it is your first, you most likely won't have an official email list. So you'll be building it as you run your campaign. Friends and family and colleagues are generally going to be okay hearing from you. So start there. Email them about your project. Just be sure to include an, an if you'd like to unsubscribe from any of these emails sort of option at the bottom of your email. Most friends and family won't unsubscribe. And if they do, they shouldn't be your family and friend anyway. Kidding. No, I'm not. Number four, use an intro video. Not unlike what I said earlier about embracing the use of social media, you should also be employing video often. Again, people need to be hearing directly from you. I can't remember off the top of my head, but the percentage of successful crowdfunding campaigns that have a, a video intro on their page versus those who do not have an intro video and are not successful, let's just say that it's pretty significant. If you don't use video anywhere else or at any other point in time during your campaign, you must at least have that intro video. Now, in your intro video, you should not beat around the bush. You should speak directly to your audience. Tell them who you are, what your project is, why it's life or death for you to be doing this project, and how their contributions will directly impact the success of your telethon. Oh, sorry, I meant crowdfunding drive. Again, I want to reiterate here the importance of people seeing you and connecting you to your project. It's much easier to ignore or say no to a person-less project than it is to a person who has an awesome project that they'd like you to be a part of. You get what I'm saying here? Number five, have fun. I'm serious here. Have some fun with the crowdfund. It's probably going to be the only one you do for your film. Again, maybe one of two. So you may as well embrace and enjoy the experience, which is exactly how you should treat it as part of your documentary experience. Like I said at the outset, crowdfunding has practically become a rite of passage for us doc lifers. To dig a little deeper with this, have fun in your social media posts. Take crazy photos of you doing crazy things and, and put in crazy captions. Draw attention to yourself, thereby drawing attention to your project. Within bounds of good taste, of course, you do not want to turn people off to you or your project. So certainly be sensible with what you're doing here. But people like to see others enjoying themselves. And if you're enjoying raising funds for your passion project, People will eventually and naturally gravitate to your passion and to your fun. They will want to be a part of your fun and eventually your success. When we were doing our Kickstarter for Elvis of Cambodia, we ran this campaign that went slightly viral within the Cambodian and Cambodian refugee community. We asked people to sing their favorite Sinsi Samut song and then tag someone else they wanted to see sing the song as well as tag our, our Facebook page and Kickstarter campaign page and then share it throughout their social media. It went over far better than we would have thought. People had fun, and we raised a lot of awareness around the film and the Kickstarter campaign. So be creative and have as much fun as possible. Again, it's a rite of passage for us doc lifers. You might as well embrace it. To run down the list of five tips for crowdfunding your doc one more time, one, clear your calendars. Two, become friends with Facebook, really social media in general. Three, email people consistently, but not constantly. Number four, use an intro video. And number five, have fun. 
Take your campaign as seriously as you want people to take your film. Know that you will have a lot. No, make that a lot of work ahead of you. And that you're going to have to seriously clear your calendar and plan on working on just about nothing else but your campaign. It truly takes that kind of commitment and energy. But the payoff will be well worth it. It's now time for our Doc Lifer of the Week. Recently, member Simon Morris, or Morris, I'm not absolutely positive about the pronunciation, and we're just going to go with Morris. Simon, you'll forgive me if that's not entirely right, who I've emailed with uh, a number of times in the past and who is a very active member within the TDL community Facebook group. Recently, he posted on the community page asking a pretty interesting question, and it's one that I've considered many different times throughout my own doc life. It's this question of whether or not documentary film can actually create real and substantial change. I'll read directly from Simon's post. I started watching some on Netflix last night. Alex Gibney's Dirty Money series started with a film about how car companies have been breaking emissions laws around the world. The second is about how a bigger pharma has been buying little pharmas, asset stripping their R&D function, and then setting up a chain of virtual pharmacies to create demand for massively raised prices to health insurers, sometimes by thousands of percent. Well-researched and cleverly told stories of hugely sinful behavior. Beautiful, dreadful stuff. These films, like Michael Moore's or or John Pilger's back catalog, like The Cove and so many others, they get us upset, often enough to click our tongues for a while even. But does anything change? The evidence suggests that not a lot does. Instead, shame gets a little more work-hardened and the sins of the rich and powerful become, well, entertainment. At its best, only when it results in whack a CEO. There we are, he was bad and now he's hurting. So I fear that the significance of documentary is not as great as I thought. If the immediate impact is not enough to affect immediate change, then probably nothing will happen at all. In fact, what once outraged us is now simply part of the background noise. Documentary is an act of journalism as much as it is art. It sits on the end of news and current affairs, but the time disconnect is too long. We got crossed with VW a few years ago, and then that all died, died down. Along comes Gibney's film. It reveals shocking depths to the corporate malfeasance. We get excited again. But if general as well as specific lessons are to be learned and applied, then the feed needs to be revisited. Alex Gibney made Enron the smartest guys in the room 13 years ago. What has changed in that time? Now, it's not enough simply to read what Simon asks. What really makes this the kind of post that inspired me to include it in this segment is that a number of you jumped in and engaged very passionately about the subject. I'll only read a couple of you, but there were certainly a number of other great responses as well. This one comes from Doc Lifer Matthew Rittenauer. Uh, Matthew wrote, I think it's more helpful to think of Doc in the aggregate as creating a more informed, curious, and critical society of people rather than any one film having an easily measurable impact. I'll also read from Ilka Nicole Delat, who Ilka wrote, Is it supposed to achieve anything? What if you think of it as art, insightful commentary on the human experience? 
And then finally, Elving Garcia wrote, I believe it depends on the campaign, strategy, and reason for the documentary. You have one like Virunga that was executed amazingly well that saved the national park because of the attention it brought to it. Or another example is Unrest that recently came out. Of course, we had Jennifer Brea, the filmmaker for Unrest, on the show earlier this year. It has brought a lot of attention to that disease. If the impact producer can work with the filmmaker, organizations, and important decision makers to bring enough attention to something it can bring about change. In other cases, like you mentioned, no. I don't think it's because they did anything wrong, but it's just a matter of the subject itself. I think a big factor is the film should should funnel the anger or energy it creates and to aim it at something tangible. But some films are just observational and not meant to become part of the story. Interesting stuff, right? I'm, I'm really happy to share that with you. I'm not sure any of us have the answer to this one, and I certainly don't. I can say that I've felt exactly how Simon has felt many times throughout the course of my own doc life. I'm already a bit cynical by nature. Truthfully, it's it's something that I work on in my life pretty regularly. Always being cynical doesn't necessarily fuel uh, ultimate happiness for me. I will say that I've worked on a film, Bomb Hunters, that did affect some change in, in some U.S. laws surrounding the use of cluster munitions during wartime. But do I believe that this has made a massive difference globally in how war is being conducted? I certainly do not. I have told numerous stories in a country where a genocide wiped out a third of its population not that long ago. Do I believe that we collectively as a human race, you know, from all of the literature and discourse and documentaries about genocide, have learned that genocide should never happen again? Just ask the Rohingya population from Myanmar about that one. But just as others have cited on Simon's initial post, there are absolutely specific uh, quantifiable responses that prove out that some change is being affected by documentary film. Look no further than docs like The Thin Blue Line, Paradise Lost, The Jinx, or Blackfish. And lastly, I'll add that while I do look at my work as having artistic value, I don't think that I can do my docs simply for art's sake, as as Ilka has suggested. There has to be something else to add, whether creating some change or awareness, whatever it is. I And this is just personally speaking again, I, I need my films to do something other than simply be a piece of art. But again, that, that's just me. I, I certainly don't speak for others, and I will absolutely defend others' right to make documentary films simply simply for the purpose of art. You better believe I will. Anyhow, thank you, Simon, for posing, maybe I should say posting, that question. It was great to read the response that it got on, and, and really continues to get on the TDL community page, and I was happy to share in today's episode of the podcast. Next up, we're going to talk with two filmmakers who have taken the notion of DIY filmmaking to a whole other level. Much discussion coming up about marketing, promotions, and distribution for your documentary film when we sit down with doc filmmakers Leo Warshawski and Todd Soliday. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life.
When I first came up with the idea for the Documentary Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. I have the pleasure of speaking with doc filmmakers Leah Warshawski and Todd Soliday, a couple who have been at it for a number of years now, and uh, I'm excited to talk with you guys. I, uh, Leah and Todd, I know that we've been trying to do this now really for well over a year, and I'm glad that we're able to kind of really get it, on, yeah, get it on the calendars now and, and have this discussion. Thanks for being so patient with our schedule. Oh, it. and likewise, thank you so much. Um, to say that you guys have been... Uh, a little busy would be certainly putting it, uh, putting it, uh, putting it mildly. I think what we'll do, Leah and Todd, is um, let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds. We tend to do this with our doc industry guests that we have on the show. That way, it gives us a little bit of context, um, or a little bit of background story to work with as we build towards um, the main part of our discussion today. Leah, let's just start with you. I, I happen to notice early on there's a lot of uh, a lot of this use of the word marine coordination. Um, having worked in TV and film a number of years myself, I certainly am well acquainted with what the coordinator does. Um, but you were based out of Hawaii for a while, and you were working on shows, including something like Lost. Um, and, and, and I'd love to hear for our audience, tell us what you did as a Marine coordinator first starting out in the industry. I was assisting Marine coordinators um, who were managing sort of all of the logistics and any filming that happens on the water, under the water, hmm. near the water. Yes, right. <laughs> I, so I, I worked with a team and I worked for a couple of Marine coordinators who've been in the industry for a very long time and was just so fortunate to learn what I learned from them. And um, it was a very humbling experience and also sort of my first entry into the film industry and seeing what all of the different departments actually do. And I, I got a really good taste <laughs> <for that. laughs> and, and sort of figured out from there what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. At what point did documentary start uh, coming into your site? I worked on a bunch of reality shows, yeah. and I think it would probably be a dirty word in the documentary world, but <laughs> well, reality. A lot of us have cut our teeth in reality TV. 
<laughs> it's uh, it's a lot like filming a documentary, to be yeah. honest. And um, except there's usually a end date right. <laughs> on a reality show, and documentaries just seem to and go on script. and on forever. <laughs> and yeah, let's not forget that. And a script. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you know, my my dad wrote a book called Shaking the Money Tree a long time ago about how to raise money for documentaries and independent film and at that time I was And what was his warning? Yeah, I was I was never on track to make documentaries for a living. I never thought I would do that. And he always told me not to go into that industry because it's too hard. You don't make any money and he works with a lot of documentary filmmakers and you know knows intimately how difficult it can be. He wrote the book on it and he told his daughter not to go in. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think, and I, maybe I'll have to dig it up for this show. I think I actually have him saying that when we, cause you know, he was on an, an early, uh, an, an early show. I think he was, I don't remember which number, but he was on early on in the documentary life. And, um, and he, I think he specifically brought that up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so. yeah. That's one thing to know about Leah. Don't ever tell her, not to do something you don't want her to do. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Didn't work out. So she well. will certainly go do that. Yeah, I never I never thought that it would be what I was doing. So when I started working on more reality content, mm. uh, what I enjoyed was getting to know people doing very interesting offbeat things in faraway places uh, in the world. And I liked working with smaller teams and just having a more intimate experience. Mm. And um, you sort of, on a reality show and on a documentary, you, you go to battle every day with the people that you're working with. And that's a very intense experience. Mm. And um, you sort of, I guess I found my tribe in that. And that yeah, was pretty addictive. We've heard that in in a number of of, of incarnations on the show. Um, we'll often, uh, you know, if we talk to somebody who's worked in TV news, which is I had actually worked briefly in TV news early on, and and one of the things that that we discover is that while it helped sort of cut our teeth in sort of some of the technical aspects of of video creation, what it did, what it certainly also did, was it left us craving. Um, craving a deeper and more complex and involved story because you know with tv news you're going in for a day and you're spending maybe 45 minutes an hour with the subject interviewing them and then you're quickly back to the studio and and cutting your package together and i think it's not uncommon that people who have worked in the tv news industry kind of get a taste for that that taste for that that storytelling but then want something much bigger much more involved and then they turn to documentary film for that that's yeah, exactly, exactly my story. Yeah. That's exactly how I. Well, yeah, let's it. hear that, Todd. Absolutely. I, I think like like myself, you, you seem to be a jack of many trades, a director slash DP, an editor. You've been a post supervisor. It, does that come from some of your background of ha- actually probably wearing a number of hats in TV news? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I cut my teeth in TV news and learned that I needed to be a scrapper yeah. early on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't go to film school. I was a history major, and I knew that I just wanted to know a lot of different things about how to how to be a storyteller. And uh, I was really fortunate. When I was 19 years old, I got an internship at an at ABC affiliate in Seattle and found really, really wonderful people willing to sit down and spend some time and show me how to do tape-to-tape editing and mm. even sit on the film bed and learn to cut film. And, and I, I learned, I guess, the craft 
over a number of years there in the newsroom. And, uh, you know, so I guess probably a slower than a film school course, but, but over 10 years of both the ABC and NBC affiliate there, it's exactly what you said. I found it deeply unsatisfying Hmm. to tell a story, to go out and have, you know, 26 minutes with a really compelling character, (laughs) person often in dire situation, uh, and then go back and you end up getting, you know, 26 seconds on the nightly news and then go to bed if you can sleep on that. And and it was, you know, it was fast and furious and I learned to be fast and I, you know, I I learned the, the craft of it, but man, it just, after 10, 12 years of that, I was ready to find something else. Right. And ended up in the post-production industry, you know, learning high-end finishing and motion graphics. And, wow, that was kind of fun for a while. And <laughs> better at shooting stuff. And, I, you know, I, I just keep wandering around to all these different parts of it. And when I met Leah, I had just finished um, two documentaries that, that I had directed. And things between her and I just clicked. Mm. It unlocked everything that I think I've been unknowingly preparing for for oh, wow. you know, the days before. That uh, wait a minute, we we can we can, you know, pick our subjects and and follow them, and invest the time that's necessary um, to to turn a film around that that audiences will buy a ticket for. It's pretty magic. <laughs> well, and then that and that is precisely what you guys are doing today. The current film project is Big Sonia, and and that's been six years in the making. Um, it seems like you're finishing up on uh, on your theatrical theatrical tour after a successful film festival run. Obviously, much of our discussion is going to be centered around what you've done really with Big Sonia and your career as a whole. And 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 here with Big Sonia, you've built you've built a magnificent film and an equally impressive film festival marketing and outreach strategies. And that's a big part of what I want to talk about with you guys today because you guys are doing it in in, in ways that um, we have so much that we can learn from. You live with it all your life, and you can never forget. I would catch myself laughing. I felt guilty. When they found us, they came with German Shepherds. Those dogs sniffed us out. So I keep myself always busy, and this helps me not to think so much about it, what I went through. To survive, especially at this mall, all these years is a miracle in itself. Because everything upstairs is closed. It's perfect. Teenagers are really hard to reach now. If I reach one heart, I accomplish something. She made me want to change things, the way things are. She made me want to make an impact on the world. Shop closing concerns me because she has such a drive to go every day. It takes people who've been through something to reach people who, who are going through something. Oh, I just want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. It's okay. Appreciate it. One person has the power to impact one person, and it's a huge chain reaction. 
I really tried my best to protect them. There are some things I didn't want them to know. The hard part is watching your mother relive these moments and then watching her pain. It touches me so deeply when I hear and I see denying that never happened and the hate is still growing. Speaking up is not enough. You know, the long story of the film is it was supposed to be a short story. Oh, wow. Leah, <laughs> I can relate to that. Lee and I, yeah, Lee and I um, we're, had just started dating, actually, and uh, we're finishing in the finishing stages of Finding Hollywood, the previous film that we worked on together. Right. Which, which is about a film festival in Rwanda. Yes. Of all places. And she said we should go to Kansas City to meet her grandma because she thinks that there is a, a reality show in her grandma's tailor shop. Oh. That she <laughs> Having seen the film, though, I can see why you would think that. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. And initially, that's what it was supposed to be. It was a short reality style show yeah. about this crazy tailor shop that's just full of color and noise, <laughs> music and food. And in the basement of this decaying super mall, she's the last shop standing. Yes. The, so I show up with a camera and yes, all of the, all of the instincts are going off. This is a, this is a great short film. Um, and the more time we spent following her around in the world and seeing the impact that she has on 13-year-old kids who are not reachable with their faces buried in their cell phones, um, to prisons where she speaks with inmates who are in for life, um, to just people that come into her shop, not necessarily for tailoring, uh, the way her story and her charisma changes lives, it became clear that it was going to be at least a long short film. <laughs> right. And then somewhere in the middle of that, um, you know, the documentary God smiled on us and they evicted her from her tailor shop. Yes, indeed, indeed. And we will, cert we will certainly get to that. <laughs> <laughs> How does a, a 90, she was 89, 90 at the time. Yeah. How does, how does a nonagenarian who absolutely will not retire from what she's been doing for the last 50 years, yeah. uh, someone who has survived the most atrocious things you can imagine during the Holocaust, how does she reconcile with this idea of retirement? Well, she doesn't and she can't. Right. And as difficult as that time was for her, we presto had, had a story arc that became a metaphor and a backplate for the story of this incredible, incredible woman. Indeed, indeed. Todd and Leah, we, we, we have some things in common, you guys, and, and Steph and I. Uh, we've both done film work. Um, we've both done film work in post-conflict countries, in populations dealing with the recent trauma of genocide. Um, in your case, Rwanda, in ours, uh, Cambodia. And, and now you're dealing with genocide directly um, with Big Sonia. Only this time it's connected to your own family. Right. Um, what made you think to tell another story of the World War II Holocaust? <laughs> well, after we finished Finding Hollywood, I, I swore no more genocide films. And of course, not only do we pick a genocide subject, it's, it's also a subject that's obviously very close to, to Leah being her grandmother. Right. And I know for a fact that we did not go into this film thinking that it would turn out to be the film it would be. 
Um, and I think we were consciously trying to avoid some of the things that have surfaced as being the main themes of the film, namely being, you know, the, the theme of intergenerational trauma and how, mm. how does something that your ancestors survived affect your outlook and life and um, just the way you feel three, you know, two generations later. And very late in the editing of our film did we see, and we were, you know, fortunate to work with the team that we do that encouraged us to not ignore the things that, that were pretty obviously going to be um, impactful for an audience broader than we'd set out. For. Right, right, right. Sort of a long-winded response to that, but the, the, the basic gist is, for, for me at least, I'm, I'm not Jewish. I don't have a Holocaust survivor in my family. Both my grandparents served in World War II. Mm. I don't think they saw anything like what Sonia saw, but I know that that generation affected what happened to my family and um, affected my parents in a way that affects me in a very small way comparable to what happened. That, that, that's interesting that you say that, Todd. It brings up a conversation I was having just the other night with Steph, which was, and, and I'll try to put this as delicate as way as, as possible, and maybe the genius of editing will help me out here later on. But one of the things that I thought about, and I have thought about this a number of times over the years, I've been going in and working in and out of Cambodia in both a commercial and, and documentary aspect since, oh, since 2004 at this point. And one of the things that, that has often been on my mind is that there are so many stories, um, there are so many memoirs, there are so many accounts, there are so many films um, that discuss what happened in World War II, that, 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 that talk about the Holocaust. And in comparison, such a diminutive amount um, is being talked about about the Cambodian genocide and what happened in the 70s in Cambodia. And I have often felt pretty strongly about that and felt like there was... Um, almost as if the weight were were were, were uh, tilted um, unfairly in a particular direction, and I couldn't sure. understand why and how that was. And I and, and my cynical mind had all sorts of ideas. And the other night, my wife, who's you know from the UK and and from Europe, said, "Well, I think it's probably it has more of a um, more people on a global level were affected." by what the events of World War II, as opposed to what happened in this tiny country in Southeast Asia. Not to say, of course, there weren't uh, global type of types of implications that would happen, but, but it kind of put it in context for me in a way that I had never been able to really think out of the way that I, that I had been thinking prior to that. And it makes sense. And so when, when someone like yourself, Todd, says, I didn't have someone in, in, in my family who was directly affected by the Jewish Holocaust. However, both of my, you know, both grandparents, I had grandparents who were in World War II. It's the same idea. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, World War II, because of the sheer volume of people around the world who were involved in those happenings, I think it maybe it makes sense that so many more stories by number are coming out of that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this, the, the challenge for any documentary filmmaker is trying to find your whatever your niche story is that you're trying to, to tell is trying to find a connection mm. beyond just that niche. How do you make that relatable to an audience outside of this very interesting world that you've been drawn into? Yeah, right. And, you know, I, 
I was always skeptical of Sonia's story because there are so many Holocaust stories. Mm. And while she is incredibly unique in character and her story of what happened to her is unique, um, I wanted to make sure that we were telling something that was relatable today. What what um, part of it were you skeptical of exactly, Todd? I'm curious. I, I didn't want to be categorized. Right. I didn't want this to be a, just another Holocaust film. Yes. And, and not that that's a bad thing. I just right. wanted to make sure that people felt the impact of our character, and I didn't want it to get buried in that pile of films. And we were very intentional in many aspects of the filmmaking to make that happen. And the thing that sparked for me, mm. the reason I wanted to make this film is exactly the thing we were trying to avoid for a long time, which is that trauma in family is universal. Mm. We've all had something. We all have family stuff, however big or small it is. Mm. And even though Sonia's family trauma and Leah's family trauma is is extreme and makes a great compelling story, mm. I wanted to make sure that that made a viewer like me think about my mom. Uh, and at the end, uh, yeah. I want audiences to come out and go, you know, okay, we didn't go through the Holocaust, but man, I, I haven't talked to my mom in six months. And <laughs> that, and I think I'm going to call her. Yeah. And that's, that's the reaction that we're getting, and it's really satisfying. I can kind of relate to how you feel because I know, like, I love my family more than anything, and, like, my mom is my best friend. It's wonderful. Um, and so I don't know what I would do without her. Sorry. I'm just... And my dad and my, all my siblings, I don't know, it's just... I just can't even imagine. <laughs> those are like all those years of your life that you're never going to get back. And you have the wisdom of, you know, 40 year old when you're 15. And that's crazy. I just respect you so much. I don't think I would ever be able to even stand that. As you know, as shooters, right, Todd, when we're behind the camera and these these emotional moments are taking place, um, how are you feeling them, Todd? And what is it that you're kind of doing to best allow yourself to continue filming and sort of honor that moment? Because I think we yeah. all have certain ways that we do it. And uh, I feel like you're a bit of a brothers in arms to me in terms of of your background and, 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 um, and the stories that you tell. I'd love to hear what is your process? What's going yeah, through your mind when you're behind sure. the camera and these emotional That's moments are happening? Really great point. I mean, I think working in TV news kind of hardens you in a way to allowing the camera to keep rolling. But I'm, I'm an emotional guy, and I, I still have a really hard time when, when a subject is breaking down in front of me, mm, mm. Not, not being human and not putting the camera down and, and stepping into the scene and somehow consoling what's happening. It's really, it's really difficult. The place I go is, oh my gosh, this is great stuff. Am I in focus? <laughs> How's my aperture? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I go to a technical place because I know I don't want to miss that big moment. Right, right. Because uh, you know that if it's going to be used later on, you, you, you're you hoping that you could could have at least honored it in the best way possible. Exactly. By not being exactly. out of focus or not being overexposed. Exactly. So I go technical to just get my mind away from what's going on in front of me. 
Let's move on to some some other topics that that's really at the meat of what you guys have been doing to drive the success of this film. The story itself, of course, has been a massive success. Without the story, none of the this other work that we're going to talk about really amounts to much. Yeah. The story's yeah. at the center of it. There is no doubt. Um, Always. But we have that, and we have that context now. I'd yeah. love to talk a bit more about things like crowdfunding, about your approach to theatrical release, um, education and outreach, these sorts of topics. Let's start with um, let's start with crowdfunding because you guys have ha, you guys ran somewhat recently an extraordinarily successful crowdfunding campaign, and yeah, you and you didn't do the usual Kickstarter or Indiegogo for your crowdfund really to bring Big Sonia to to the big screen. Um, you chose womenyoushouldfund.com. So Leah and or Todd, um, whenever you guys want to jump in here, I'd love to start talking a bit about that. You know, we, we've been raising money for seven years and still raising money. That part doesn't end. But we, we were hoping, honestly, to avoid a crowdfunding campaign because we understand how much effort and work goes into something like that. And so <laughs> we tried very, very hard to not have to do it. Wow. And uh, ultimately, you know, we just couldn't see another way to raise the, the final money that we needed to get the film into the world the way that we wanted to get it out into the world. Right. And so... Which did, is how, by the way, how did you want to get this out into the world? What was your guys' vision? We knew, we knew that we wanted... Um, to qualify for the Academy Awards. And so that campaign is costly. We knew that we wanted to work with Film Sprout, which is the outreach and impact company we're working with now. And right. they're amazing at what they do, but they're not cheap. And um, we, we knew that we needed to get it into, into theaters and we wanted to make a curriculum guide to go with it. And yes. so all of these things for outreach and impact and marketing are very expensive. Mm. And uh, by the time you're done making the film, that's like a whole other job to start raising money for the next phase. Right. So with those goals, we knew what the financial commitment was going to be. And we had partners on board who we wanted to work with. And um, we just didn't see a way around doing a crowdfunding campaign to raise the money quickly. And uh, we had done Kickstarter before successfully for Finding Hollywood, and we had done an Indiegogo before, and we just wanted to do something different. Mm. And uh, around the same time, some friends of ours who have a site called Women You Should Know uh, decided that they were going to start a new company called Women You Should Fund. And we had worked with them before writing some blogs for the Women You Should Know site. Okay. And so I reached out to them and said, hey, we, they've been following Big Sonia and the project for a while. And so we ended up being their first film project on the platform and also the first project trying to raise as much money as we were trying to raise. So yeah. for us, it was really unique because we could then market the campaign as we're the first, <laughs> which... Uh means that we're not going to get lost in all of the other people who are doing Kickstarter campaigns and Indiegogo campaigns. And at the same time, we also had to do a lot of education to let people know, hey, this is really just like Kickstarter. That's right. You don't have the branding power behind it. The branding power, but we looked at the metrics for what we did with Kickstarter. Mm. And to be honest, 
that branding didn't do much for us. We got maybe three donations from people who were just looking at regular Kickstarter. Right, right. $10, so the Kickstarter branding, the Indiegogo branding didn't do much for us. Okay. So we didn't really have anything to lose at that point. Plus, the Women You Should Fund team, you know, Jen and Cynthia who run it, are two people who work as hard as we do. Mm. You know, they're really, we consider them family now. They became very good friends and colleagues. And They're incredibly powerful women and allies. <laughs> okay. Get allies that with Kickstarter or Indiegogo. There's so much more personal attention and really passion for the project. And they ended up, we met them recently in New York and they met Sonia. And it's just become a a family affair and much more personal than we would have ever gotten with Kickstarter or Seed Spark or Indiegogo. Right. That made us excited about doing it. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way to get through a campaign unless you can find ways to get excited about it. And so with their partnership, it allowed us to hunker down for, you know, four months. Mm. Really, I mean, we prepared it for longer than that, but the campaign itself was, you know, it was only going to be, we really only wanted to, to do it for 30 days or 45 days, but it took so long to gain the momentum that we needed that we ended up having to extend it. And, and and what do you attribute to the success ultimately of this, of this crowdfunding campaign for big Sonia? You, in order to, to do it successfully, you really have to put in between six to 14, sometimes 18. I mean, on the crazy times, yeah. <laughs> hours a day. You can't, there's not a day that you can leave it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, there isn't. That's right. You, really need to, you know, I think we canceled two vacations. We, <laughs> yep. <laughs> we turned down other work. I mean, we made sure, you know, we lost a summer. Essentially, we were crowdfunding all summer and we, we lost our summer. We didn't do anything else that summer except raise money. Yep. It worked out in the end for us, but it was, we sacrificed a lot to do it. So, I think it's important people know what kind of commitment it's going to be to do it well. The campaign that you ran in large part um, was, well, really it was to get the film out there, which includes theatrical release, right? And right. Um, and really a theatrical tour. Uh, what I'd love to hear from you guys is, and what were, what were the things that you did to sort of prepare and strategize for the theatrical release once you had the money? Or I'm assuming you guys had that strategy in place before we you raised the, the money, right? We had the strategy in place before. We have a yeah. um, distribution consultant, Brian Newman, who's a friend and a mentor and also worked on Finding Hollywood with us and helped us figure out what that longer-term strategy well, was going to be. Yeah, and I think having that strategy in place solidifies your ask in the campaign exactly right. the same as when is when you're writing a grant proposal yeah yes. we came up with a budget we had talked to we did a lot of research on theatrical bookers or distribution companies and we uh met jim brown at, at argo pictures met him in person and knew that we wanted to work with him um we we talked with a lot of different pr and marketing companies we knew that we were going to work with falco um, we sort of put the pieces in place, or put our dream team in place before we did the crowdfunding campaign. We okay. knew that we wanted to work with Film Sprout. You know, we, we got everybody 
in place and got budgets from everyone and figured out what it would take to press go mm. and knew who we wanted to work with. And so by the time we were ready to crowdfund, we could say, hey, we have these people committed. Here are the credentials for who we want to work with. They've done this before. They're good at what they do. And now we need the money to work with them. So yeah, we prepared quite a bit. And to give us to give us some context with the success that you guys have been having theatrically, it recently played Kansas City. But the last time I looked, you guys were over eight weeks showing at this particular theater in Kansas City. How on earth were you guys, as DIY indie filmmakers, able to pull that off? That kind of a, that kind of a run in, in a single theater in a city. So we're still playing at the Glenwood Arts Theater. In Incredible! Kansas. There you go. In ten. Um, Nobody on our team, and Todd, myself included, thought that we would still be screening at that theater. But because the theater has such a personal connection with Sonia, mm. and because she lives in Kansas City and fairly close to the theater, just the fact that she's there, Regina lives there, because there's such a close personal connection, yeah. it's made a huge difference. Sonia and Regina go out and, and speak in Kansas City, and every time they go out and speak, they tell people to go to the movie theater. <laughs> That's great. Plays in, in, people are screening it in churches and synagogues, and same thing. You know, it, Anyone who sees it at a church and a synagogue wants to tell their friends about it, and they have an outlet. They have somewhere to send people. We spent one month, I think we spent four weeks total in Kansas City at the beginning of the release, literally camping out at the movie theater there for as many Q and A's as humanly possible so that we could push, push it ourselves. Being there in person makes a huge difference. Yeah. And so we, again, canceled vacations and decided that this is what needs to happen to, to have a successful run. So we, we spent time at the beginning, um, making sure that we were there and, and, marketing it appropriately and so that when we left things are still now able to run on their own and what's happening with the film is that people are going to see it multiple times right we we chose a small independent theater that had a personal connection to our subject and the subject matter and we just found out yesterday that we've broken the all-time record for that theater (laughs) (laughs) congratulations Oh <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Again, you're not supposed to, this is not a typical, this is not typical. So yeah. even our booker is, I mean, nobody thought, we. people are telling us theatrical is a lost leader. You're going to lose money. You're going to go bankrupt. You're not right, 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 right. Prepared for gloom and doom. And um, the fact that we're making money back off of this theatrical, engagement able to pay for some of our marketing fees which are so incredibly expensive yeah yeah that we're making anything uh is a very pleasant surprise but it's not normal you mentioned film sprout earlier and i have it written down as something i wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about tell us who film sprout is and how and why you guys decided to work with them we've actually been consulting with them for years we consulted with them about finding Hollywood, and because we didn't do a theatrical release for that film, it, it didn't really make sense for us to hire Film Sprout. We couldn't afford to. Yeah. But they're a, 
outreach and impact company, uh, female owned and based in New York. And they work with films who have had a theatrical release to capitalize on the marketing and the press that comes with a theatrical release and then book and manage what they call community screenings, which are screenings that anybody can host at basically any venue that has a screen. Right, right. So church or synagogue. You can do this on your own. You can book your own community screenings and manage all of that. And we, we've done that in the past. But if you can have someone like Filmsprout on your team who's proactively going out and approaching organizations or museums, trying to form larger national partnerships or regional partnerships, then that's really the dream for most documentary filmmakers I know because yeah, it sure is. have somebody working on your team who's doing that job. Right. Um, now it's, you know, scale. it's scale. It's also something you have to pay for. It's not, uh, it's not the most inexpensive way to, to do it, but it's absolutely something for you to raise <laughs> money for. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knowing that you guys probably aren't able to divulge some of this information right now, um, you, I'm hoping you can share at least some some of the maybe the challenges that you're that you're coming up against um, in terms of TV, TV distribution. Um, what should we know about this journey that you guys are experiencing right now? Well, we basically have had to throw all of our expectations out the window because we had thought there were some good avenues television broadcast, domestic broadcast avenues for a film like this. Um, As would you, I. <laughs> As would I. seems so obvious yeah. for a lot of channels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But. We're not exactly sure. I don't know that anybody's sure. We're not sure why we've been turned down by some of the places that we thought would be a good fit. And right. they can't exactly tell us why either. So who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... We always, I don't know what's going to happen a couple months from now. Our theatrical is going well. We're still kind of in the middle of it. Mm. I, we won't end for another couple months. So okay, we still okay. have months where we're going to be in theaters. Well, and our film is so timely right now. Yeah. We could not have predicted how how poignant it is for this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the disconnect for us is that we're, you know, we've won 18 awards. We're the highest grossing film in the Midwest at the Glenwood Art in their history. Yeah. We've got a screening in Congress that we're working on for April that'll hopefully happen. We, wow. The city of Kansas City and Overland Park and three different districts have named a day, Big Sonia Day. Wow, that's, in that's so incredible. Incredible partners. We've done 85 community screenings. We have an educational version of the film. We premiered a day after the election and... Hundreds of thousands of people have seen the film since then. And the reaction that we get from audiences is so different than the reaction that we get from agents and distributors who are telling us. That is, that is interesting, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah the universal reaction in a theater is it's so black and white in comparison. I, don't, I really don't know yet what's going to happen down the road. Mm. This film, I don't know yet how... You know, we don't have an offer from Netflix yet. We're working on that. But again, like there are algorithms that people use that we're not privy to and nobody yes. else is to. And I don't know how we fit into those boxes yet because yeah. we're still working on that. <laughs> 
but we're to, we're just trying to do everything we can. All I know is it takes us over an hour after screening to get out of a theater because people just want to talk about this movie. <laughs> right. All I know is I texted you guys, and you're the first people I've ever ever texted out of the blue that was going to be a guest on the show to tell you how incredible your film was. That's what I know. <laughs> Audiences love it, and the response that we've gotten from most distributors and agents is that the film's not commercial enough and I, I don't know exactly what that means yet but I guess you should have never left reality tv guys I don't know yeah I don't <laughs> what I don't were know. you thinking yeah I don't know the jury's still out yeah so we'll see we'll see in another couple months what, what be happens. prepared for a long disheartening road <laughs> <laughs> there it is <laughs> that's what i was looking for <laughs> don't let the bastards get you down that's yeah absolutely man absolutely you really got to keep whatever that fire was the first time you met your character mm. and got you deeply embroiled in your multi-year journey whatever that fire was hang on to that because you're yeah. going to need it yeah. way down the road when a review comes in that you don't agree with. <laughs> you got to remember why you did what you did. Damn right. <laughs> I love it. it. Sounds that sounds obvious, but it's it's what's getting me through right now. Yeah. The film is Big Sonia. I've been talking with doc filmmakers Leo Warshawski and Todd Soliday. As we as we finish up here, give me some final thoughts that you could impart to our to our listeners who are doc filmmakers who might be in who might be making their first or second documentary films. I think you need to surround yourself with a community that you trust and feel inspired by, whether that's friends or family or colleagues or mentors. I think you need people around you during the process to put you in check and to help pick you up when when the roller coaster stops. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and um, you just you need a good team and community around you through the process it's a it's a group effort you cannot make a film on your own and you need a really strong team that you trust in it really it really matters to work with nice people <laughs> yeah and you can it's possible and i would say hold out and trust your instincts we've had a lot of people yeah. they want to get involved or want to take certain rights for the project or you know, try to be kind of heavy handed with us. And right. I think because we've stuck to our instincts and stuck to our guns and really held on to our rights for as long as possible, we get to work with people that we want to work with instead of just giving it away and then being stuck. And that's something we learned on our first film. And I'm glad that we did because it's such an encompassing process and it takes over your entire life. So if you're not working with people, you want to work with or you don't like who you're working with and you're really going to be miserable. <laughs> yeah. So it is worth it to hold out. You guys, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, I'm, again, I'm so happy that we were able to, to finally uh, coordinate this and, and have this conversation. It's been a long time coming and uh, really I wish great. you all the success in the world. I, I'm, I'm excited to give us, give us some ways that we can follow you on social media. So we have a Facebook page for Big Sonia. We have a Twitter account and an Instagram account. And all of the information about the project and how to host your own screening or order the educational version is all on our website, which is bigsonia.com. We have a ton of screenings listed there as well, but that's, that's the clearinghouse. And we are always looking for people to host 
screenings all over the U.S. So please get in touch if that's something you're interested in. Todd, Leah, thank you so much for coming on The Documentary Life. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. Mm